Hey folks, welcome to Lights Out Mass, a podcast about government transparency or the lack thereof in Massachusetts. I'm Andrew Cormier, here with my co-host Jeff Raymond. Hi everybody. We are recording on Monday, August 13th, 2023. And today we're going to be talking about uh, something pretty important, remote access to public meetings. We've got our first guest, Laura Kiesel, here with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, and Laura is a journalist and advocate who, among other things, writes about disability and accessibility. Her work has appeared in publications like The Atlantic, The Guardian, Salon, Vice, Politico, and locally she's written for Dig Boston. Um, And so Laura is actually disabled herself, so we're really grateful to have the opportunity to hear her perspective because this is an issue that really impacts disabled people in particular. So before we get into the main topic, Laura, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, you covered a lot in the bio, but yes, so I'm a, I'm a freelance writer um, and journalist, and I cover a bunch of different beats, but especially in more recent years, I've started to integrate a lot of my personal experiences as a disabled person into a lot of my, my work, because I think it does impact almost every issue from like environmental issues to healthcare, and in this case to access to to government meetings, which is part of our democracy and, and us being underrepresented in a lot of these these meetings is a part of a problem that I wanted to address. Yeah, and also, uh, Jeff, you have uh, personally had some experience with this issue of public meetings. Could you just tell us a little bit about that before we jump into the main topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I previously served as a library trustee um, in the town of Millbury, and I currently serve on the Conservation Commission. So I've actually been on both sides, the pre-hybrid model and the post-COVID model, where post-COVID, they keep extending out the hybrid piece until they can come up with some regulation, which is what we're talking about today. Um, But it's um, it's been a very illuminating um, process over the years. And I'm excited to talk to somebody about it who has a different perspective than what I've got personally. This would be great. Yeah. So public meetings, Um, you know, obviously, Massachusetts has a very long history of public meetings going back to the you know town meetings of the colonial era. But there's been in just the last few years, a huge shift in public meetings, which is, uh, you know, the pandemic, which you may have heard about. Uh, (laughs) uh, We now have uh, remote access to meetings. So whereas, you know, once you would have had to show up in person, which can be very difficult, you know, for people who have to work, for people who have children, or uh, as we're going to talk about people with disabilities, um, you know, it was very difficult, but now you can, you know, and, and also, you know, they used to have, or they still have, um, like public access TV, but the problem with that is you, you can watch it, but you can't participate. But now, you know, uh, w- there's this new model. There's, uh, let me just re- define two terms real quick before we get into the discussion. One is remote meeting and two is hybrid meeting. So a remote meeting is a meeting where everybody is communicating, you know, through the internet, uh, through video, and a hybrid meeting is a meeting where you have some people who are in person and other people are going to be communicating virtually. And I will add that the ability to do a hybrid meeting is very new to Massachusetts, but it wasn't handled on the state level until 
the conversation recently. Um, towns have had the opportunity to go to a hybrid model for a number of years now. I want to say since 2015, Laura will probably be able to correct me, but um, the towns had to actively opt into it. And what the legislature is talking about now is making that the default, that everybody would be in on the hybrid model, as opposed to right now where we're still under the COVID rules for it, but where the towns had to actively opt into public meetings on a hybrid schedule. Yeah. So Laura, let's let's have you just real quick, why don't you explain like why exactly are public meetings important in general and why specifically is remote access to public meetings important to people? So I when when we don't have enough representation that actually reflects the demographics of the area we live in, we're not going to, like places the the boards and committees are not going to be voting with that representation in mind. And I've seen this happen. I've even seen it happen very recently um, in an in, in-person only meeting um, that I can get into further where, um, you know, my town is almost half, almost 50-50 renters and homeowners. And yet I continually watch these in-person meetings at a live stream from home because I can't attend where almost everyone is a homeowner who is speaking. And so obviously their interests are going to be different than someone who's a renter. Obviously someone who's higher income might have different concerns in the town than someone who's a, a lower income. Um, and, you know, so these perspectives are missing when we don't have more um, accessible options like remote to maximize that representation. And I've seen it in real time, how the remote, when we were going even just 100% remote, um, how many more people were participating and how much more diverse that representation of the attendees were than prior to the pandemic when it was in-person only. It was the, the usually the audience was extremely white, extremely like class privileged, and there was just and and that and it became kind of an echo chamber, and so that's what I am concerned about because I feel like that access that a lot of us had when when remote was the default option is getting rolled back, and I do sometimes wonder if it is on purpose because there are some things people don't want to know everyone else's perspective about. Yeah, and you um, have brought up to us uh, this, um, I believe it's called the MBTA Communities Plan, which is uh, something that in your city they had a meeting about. Could you, first of all, just explain what this this MBTA thing is, and then could you tell us a little bit about that meeting? Sure. So, um I, I don't know all the details, but the MBTA Communities uh plan. I think it's part of an act that was signed into law by Charlie Baker right before he exited. And it um, mandated that certain communities that were in proximity to public transit had to build up a certain amount of housing around that. Um, affordable so, housing, right? No, not just affordable. And that is actually... Oh, interesting. I thought that was kind of the whole point of it. That, yep. Well, that was the theory, whole point of it. <laughs> it that, but in they theory, that but one that up. is not that is not how it actually is in practice. And I am a low-income renter. I am actually a Section Eight voucher holder, so I am very attuned to what these house. Most of this housing is going to probably be luxury housing, and a tiny percentage of it is going to be quote unquote affordable 
But if you actually even look at some of the affordable earmarks, it is housing priced way beyond what my voucher can access. So it won't actually be most of even the affordable housing for low income people. So those of us who are a lot are worried about being displaced from our town as it gentrifies would like to have a say in this plan that's being adopted. And yet uh, the only in per the only community meeting for the whole town that was held the week, I think it was two weeks ago now, it was an in-person only meeting. And I asked, I, I put in a formal requ request for a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. I was very clear that I would like an option to attend and participate remotely because I am disabled. It is very hard for me to go and sit for hours um, in these um, halls that usually have these rickety chairs. Um, I have spinal um, degeneration. I can't just sit on hard chairs for hours. I'm also immunocompromised, so I don't like going into crowded indoor spaces where most people are not masked. Um, so. I was told no. I was told I could instead just watch the live stream. Um, but obviously that's not as democratic. I didn't get to speak among a community of my peers in town. I didn't get to represent on a public forum like an underrepresented viewpoint. And I watched it, it went on for four hours. So obviously a lot of, you have to be pretty privileged to sit someplace for four hours. It went on from like seven to almost 11 PM, I think. And I watched everyone and it was like, uh, I didn't, I only saw two people of color the whole entire night. It was 67 community members spoke. Only two were people of color. I didn't see any black people speak. I didn't see, I think I saw one renter, a person who said they were a renter who was an affordable housing speak. Well, only Almost one renter the entire else was night? A homeowner and like I said, we make a that I know for sure, um, uh -huh. but I do know the vast majority were homeowners because I'm. This is the thing I I do go to. I I've tried to publicly participate in a lot of meetings, and you see the same faces, so you start to know a lot of the people. And it was an older a lot a lot of older members, which is fine. But we we are getting more younger people in the town, and it was clear they were underrepresented. Um, I did not see a single person the entire four hours bring up disability access, which I thought was interesting since we're talking about the MBTA, which has huge access issues, um, and housing, which has huge access issues. Not only that, the 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 group that you know they they have like this meeting like working group that they elect um it's not like publicly elected but that different um the town manager and the select board and other people get together and they get this working group and when they were presenting they were talking about the ideal of creating the 15 minute city where everyone can walk or bike everywhere and they kept saying everyone can walk or bike everywhere everyone can walk or bike everywhere and right away i was like well obviously they didn't talk to any disabled people because right away a lot of people of those people would be like but we can't bike and some of us can't even walk and by whose standard are 15 minutes because obviously someone who's mobile who has mobility limitations their 15 minutes of walking might be very different than what i think they're picturing which is like people who are abled um and in a different situation so it really felt like even the framework was very exclusionary to to certain kind of perspectives and that concerns me because these plans are going to have an imprint on what the town becomes and who can live here who can who can actually live here i don't remember if you said in this top but um what town do you live in i live in the town of arlington Oh, um, good old Arlington. Yes. Yeah. So we're <laughs> right on the border of Somerville and Cambridge. We're sandwiched between Somerville and Cambridge on one side, but then like Lexington and our, um, Lexington, Belmont, 
um, and Medford on the other and Winchester. Yeah. So the, what's really interesting about this MBTA thing, and it feeds right into this public access, public public meeting thing that we're talking about, is that this is one of those great ideas that they had at the top that once it got down to how they were going to implement it, it got watered down to the point of almost pointlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, Milbury um, did comply with this order um, and how they decided to do so was to rezone the center of our town so mm-hmm. it could be built up a certain way, but there is nowhere to build. Yeah. So there's no, we are now in compliance, quote unquote, because we have a zoning area for the MBTA communities program, because we are bordering Grafton, which has a T-stop. We border Whistler that has a T-stop, but we will never build that housing. That housing mm-hmm. is never going to be built in Millbury mm-hmm. because the zone for it is already built and is filled with historic buildings. So what was the point? What did we accomplish here? Um, You do have some towns um, like Sutton and Holden that have decided, yeah, we're just not going to do it. We don't want this. We don't want, and why don't they want it? Because they don't want the the people who they believe end up in affordable housing in their towns. And that's, you know, they're they're not saying the quiet part out loud, but they're (laughs) getting pretty darn close. Yeah. Holden actually just got sued by the state for doing this, but Holden and Sutton have both made the same excuse where the enforcement mechanism in the law involves a lot of grants from the state. And they're like, well, we'll just not have the grants. We won't apply for a mass works grant anymore. We'll just, mm-hmm. we'll just put that aside. We don't need to, we don't need access to those that money. So the Holden thing's going to be interesting. But um, mm-hmm. you know, Laura, to your point, Milbury had a working group as well. And it mm-hmm. was the town manager, the town planner. Mm-hmm and one person from our planning board. And there were people who'd go up to every selectman meeting or every planning board meeting saying, we don't know what's being discussed in these meetings. What are you planning for us? And they're like, oh, we'll report out to you guys when it's done. And we have to have two public meetings. And those public meetings were on a Monday night at seven o'clock with a smaller board that isn't the board of selectmen. And we can't say no because it's a state state thing. You'd think you'd want more input, but it doesn't happen. It's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah. And so, Laura, regarding your situation, you were uh, denied this accommodation. They did not hold the remote meeting. So you actually filed a um, complaint under the Americans with Disabilities Act to the Massachusetts Attorney General. Is that correct? Yes. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, So I I spoke with the Disability Law Center. I do want to clarify, they're not my lawyer. They weren't giving me formal advice, but they did just say you could file this complaint with the Attorney General's office because they are seeing this. Um, The Disability Law Center and um, disability advocacy groups that I work closely with said that they're hearing a lot from disabled people that now we can't access these meetings that we were the past few years. Um, And just to clarify what happens is, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, a lot, some some of this has kind of been on a, uh, you know, a trial, like a case by case basis on certain things, whether or not things could be accessible. And I, I know I, in my article about virtual meetings, I also did an article during the pandemic for Christian Science Monitor. I was a consultant about telecommuting as a work option for many people. A lot of disabled people were denied the ability to work from home remotely, even if it was an office job where most of, if not all of it could be done from home. But what happens is now that we're, after so many years where we 
did have remote options, it becomes a little different now because now there's legal precedent. They can't really argue the way they could before the pandemic. Oh, we don't do that or we don't have that option because it's like, oh, well, when everyone was suddenly dealing with a situation that disabled people deal with, when it was everyone having to have those challenges, everyone worried about contagion or getting sick, um, then you were able to quite quickly, you know, transition to the these methods and offer them. But now you're saying you can't now that the people who are more abled and have less risk don't don't want to do it. So I, I feel like that that is my big argument too that I mentioned to the Attorney General's office. You know, in my article when I spoke to the Disability Law Center, they mentioned too that if you can't do hybrid, why wouldn't you either you could potentially have the meetings remote only like they could have done this MBTA communities plan remote only. I honestly think they didn't do it because they probably would have gotten double or triple the people there who wanted to speak and it would have taken even more hours. But if you want a democratic representation or they could have broken it up and had some remote option, like some remote only or some in person, if they really couldn't do, you know, they said that the room was not equipped for hybrid and they so they didn't have the financial access to do it but i just feel don't you like love that concerned. don't you love yeah. that as an aside we're not set up for it yeah well, you know what do you know you what you're hour, set up for? You had do you have to a, do it do you have a laptop and wi-fi then you're set yeah. up for it <laughs> you know yeah. oh goodness so you know it, it's funny because we have a similar older set in our town we have a very our 50 plus community is much higher than everybody else, although we are getting a lot of influx of young professionals now. Mm -hmm. But we had a lot of resistance with keeping the meetings as a hybrid schedule here, even though a lot of our older people generally liked having that opportunity because they don't want to drive at night. That's what mm -hmm. they'll say. They don't want to drive in the dark. They don't want to be stuck in a meeting at town hall until 10 o'clock at night when they can hop on a computer or their tablet while they're watching TV and jump on when their thing that they're interested in comes about. It's been revolutionary for a lot of the older people who, you know, we would not consider people with disabilities. We would consider them just older people who are figuring it out and who can get there. And, you know, at least in my community, it's not that they want to limit who's there. It's just that they don't, th they can't think outside of their little, their little universe, where that little universe is, you have your meetings in person. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's just how we've always done it, gosh darn it. You know, it's yeah. it's unfortunate. Yeah. And so I guess th this whole uh, experiment of these remote meetings has been happening under these kind of like temporary rules, basically, from my understanding. But Correct. there's currently legislation before the state legislature that would make this stuff permanent. Um, but there's there's uh, an interesting dynamic going on. So Laura was actually this was on July 26th, which interestingly is the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was the 33rd yes. anniversary. Yeah. So Laura was testifying at this legislative hearing um, and uh, she she's going to get into this a little bit more, but she was uh, testifying for a bill that would require hybrid meetings. Um, but there is another, uh, set of bills that would, um, only give them, essentially it would give them the, the option to do whatever they want. They could have in-person, they could have remote, they could have hybrid. And 
I uh, I listened to all the testimony that was posted online. Unfortunately, the the like feed cut out after like three three and a half hours, so I didn't hear everything. But there were a lot of like public officials from these local uh, governments yeah. who were testifying, and I if I am not mistaken, every single one of them or close to every single one of them was testifying for these bills that would that would give them options and not require hybrid meetings and so they were basically complaining that the equipment costs too much they don't have space to hold all these hybrid meetings and they the buzzwords that you would hear were mandates which of course are bad and flexibility which is good and they would say uh this would come up in in a lot of the testimony they would say that they want to be able to do what works best for each community or what makes the most sense for each community and um I, I don't want to, I, I want to, so th there's, Jeff and I, in our last episode, we're talking about these municipal organizations um, that they, they are sort of private nonprofit groups, but they get money from cities and towns and they work on behalf of local officials and they do lobbying work. Um, and one of the, one of them is called the Massachusetts Municipal Association, which represents the like leadership of, uh, the like executive leadership of cities and towns across Massachusetts. And they posted their written testimony online. And this will just give you kind of a flavor of, of what these people are saying. This is basically, uh, very similar to what all of these, uh, you know, these public officials were saying. So quote, much of the work to modernize and transition core municipal government functions into this new era has been highly successful, creating increased access, engagement, and transparency in local government. However, one size does not fit all. Each municipality has different capabilities, needs, and preferences. A statewide mandate for hybrid or remote meetings would be untenable and unworkable. And so it goes on to say, Many municipalities have outdated older buildings that are difficult and costly to retrofit. Ongoing costs such as additional staffing needs as well as technology fees are also unquantified with local boards, commissions, committees, subcommittees, advisory committees, and authorities in each municipality subject to the open meeting law. Cities and towns need options that allow them to look at their individual equipment, meeting space, technology licenses, financial resources, and the public interest when determining how to approach each meeting. And so they go on to say that they also have the support of the these other municipal groups, uh, the Munis Massachusetts Municipal Lawyers Association, the Massachusetts Moderators Association, the Massachusetts Association of Conservation Commissions, and the Massachusetts Association of Regional Planning Agencies. So there are a ton of these groups and what they all have in common is that they don't want to do hybrid meetings. You know, they want the quote flexibility. And I, I want to raise one point about this, which is when they're talking about the public interest and they're talking about what works best for each community, my sense is that the community they're talking about is themselves. It's not the actual community of people because no. clearly what works best for each community is to have as many options as possible for participating in these meetings. Like the, from the perspective of a person who lives in a town, you can go to the, the in-person or you can participate remotely. You know, having both options is the best option. Whereas for these uh, officials who may want to control what goes on in these meetings or who is able to speak at them, 
uh, or just how much money they have to invest in transparency. Obviously, you know, the quote flexibility is what works for them, but what works for the community that they're claiming to be representing is, is a different kind of flexibility, the flexibility to participate in the meeting how you want. Yeah, so I, it's funny because I, as somebody who is part of, oh, I believe I actually have a membership to the Massachusetts Association of Conservation Commissions, and I have written oh, Jeff, them. So you, uh, you, Jeff, you're you're against this stuff. What's your problem? I am. I am exactly. I am the problem here. Yeah. I am the problem. You know, in their defense, in their defense, they work with all the communities and towns. There are some towns that are, you know, five hundred people. You know, but at the same time, we have. You know, like you said at the top of the top of the program, we have a very rich history of meetings in this state. We kind of know how to do it at this point. We would pile ourselves into a church once a week and do all the stuff all at once, or we'd go into the schoolhouse. We still hold our town meetings in the in the school auditorium every year. You know, there is nothing. I I refuse to believe that there isn't a single community that is. You know, even if they're having trouble getting fiber optic. Uh, internet in their area that their schools are not already wired for it that their that their town halls are not do not have a basic IT consultant or person on staff they can do it it is that they don't want to and these organizations that we list off here they advocate for the towns and not necessarily for the towns that's not a good way the town administrators right who have a very who often are not people who live in the town <laughs> and are often people who have very different motivations than someone like myself or Laura. Yeah. A lot of these people are like essentially professional town managers who, right. They, yes. they might even, they might even like, they, they don't get promoted, but they might move from town to town doing the same job. And it's like a, it's like yeah. a profession for them essentially. And uh, by the way, just to clarify that testimony submitted by the MMA was by a guy named Jeffrey Beckwith. He's actually retired since he gave that testimony, um, but he's replaced by uh, Adam Chapdelaine. But he, uh, this this group, the uh, MMA or Massachusetts Municipal Association has been around for quite some time. And as I alluded to in the last episode, they were involved in like testifying against public records reform. So this like opposition to transparency is like a big part of what they do. And and just again, to to, to reiterate their spending your money on advocating for these things. They get like fees from the towns that are, are paid into them. Um, and you know, but, um, Adam Chapdelaine is the former town manager of Arlington. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so very interesting. Um, he's not the one who gave that a lot of interesting public record stuff that went on under, under well, can his you, tenure. Would you share a couple of those? Because that's actually really good context for where we're well, going. Well, just to this. clarify, Adam Chapdelaine is not the person who gave that testimony, but he is yeah, representing no, right. this organization now. It's funny because Arlington has been one of the, with my post records process, they have been one of the worst. These are the, these are the police <laughs> misconduct records. That's right. Yes. I should probably reiterate that. Um, but um, they've been one of the most difficult ones to work with. So it's not surprising to hear a person from Arlington's name associated with yet another transparency issue. I'm not sure if you have, if you have some examples you can share, Laura. Um. Well, so I did get a lot of records from them. Um. So and I've now I've dealt with so many state and other types of agencies that have even been much more difficult that by by comparison, Arlington was not that bad. But there was a period of time where um, I was getting hit with all these. I mean, they were like 75 
fee, but they were identical fees, no matter who was, who was um, giving them, which so made them seem a bit generic. Um, and I did a fundraising um, effort and it, it got a lot of PR around the public records issue. And so they, I think they just relented and, and I don't really get any pushback from them on public records, but for a while there, there was a lot of $75 for this, $75 for that, no matter what you were asking for. Um, when I was looking into a lot of police misconduct and, and other stuff with the town, but, uh, regarding the what Andrew was talking about with with their argument it's just as a disabled person I just want to say that that is our whole history is being told it's too expensive to to you know to redo these things to make the society more accessible to yeah. you because we didn't think to do it in the first place because we didn't really care about you but now we're having a harder time justifying that because something has happened you know, in this case, the pandemic, which really showed how inequitable, inequitable it was, because now we have this comparison rate of attendee records when things were remote versus now that they're being a lot of them are being conducted in person again. Um, so I always, you know, I understand that there may be some communities that are really small and on a shoestring budget. But then again, I, I think the the legislation I testified for is supposed to offer some funding and resources to the municipalities along with the mandate to do hybrid. But at the same time, it just really gets exhausting to be told we can't help you because, or we can't make this truly accessible or inequitable because money. But I find that places always can come up with money for other things. I mean, and I just want to point out here in Arlington, we are a rather affluent community. So we don't have that argument. And I did watch a lot of those testimonies that day and a lot of those communities that were testifying against hybrid were not were not suffering there were a couple of small ones but there a lot of them were okay i know your community you're pretty you're pretty um comfortable you have funds i feel like this is more because like the thing i talked about they don't want to deal with the extra voices and in absorbing that or like it being more convoluted to them but i mean that that's what the road to equity means. There's a transition period and you have to deal with that. But I don't really like that argument. And it's one. And I feel like there should have been a little more self-awareness at the on the like anniversary of the Americans yeah. with Disabilities Act yeah. that we're giving these arguments that are literally tropes um, that you could come up with for against curb cuts and escalators and all the <laughs> other things we've been asking for over the years. And just to be told that. Um, and I do want to just say really quickly that prior to the pandemic, when I did in-person meetings, I've had several terrible experiences asking for very reasonable accommodations, um, which shows me that it's not just about hybrid. A lot of the municipalities are just are not equipped or don't even understand the, the rudimentary language of accessibility or the words reasonable accommodation. I, it was in my attorney general um, complaint uh, right, a year, right before, like about a year before the pandemic, I worked on a warrant that I wrote that was about parking access for disabled people, ironically. And again, I can't sit for four hours in a bench. So I wrote the select board um, administrator beforehand, like a week beforehand, or even longer, I think maybe two weeks beforehand. And I said, because mine was dead last, my bill. And I was like, that's like 11 o'clock at night. I was like, can I please go earlier in the evening, preferably first? I was like, this is, I made it very clear that this was an accommodation request, that it was a health issue. I said, or can you let me know if it is later in the evening at time frame so I can come in 
um, just for that time around that time. So I'm not sitting there for hours. She said, sure, you will go first when we do the slate of warrants come in around eight, which I did. And then I proceeded to sit there for almost four hours, three, three hours. And during the intermission around 930, someone I was so sick by that time, I couldn't even stand did go up and ask the select board. I thought she had an account and they were like, sit down, we'll call her when we call her, you know, wow. and it's like, there. I don't even think it was communicated to the select board what I asked for. And, you know, I, there were so many things. Obviously, I sat there for hours. I didn't bring a cushion because I thought I was only going to be there under an hour, but I also didn't eat dinner. I have to take medication at night. So I didn't get to take my evening medication. So by the time I went up at almost 11, I was like shaking. I had to sit during my whole presentation. Um, and so, I mean, they should have given me an accommodation no matter what, but obviously if I was at home, it would, none of that would have been as harmful to me as it was. Like I could have just laid down. I could have had my medication. I could have taken yeah. a meal. So the implications when they do mess up, which in my experience is often on your accommodations, there's so much less at stake if you're able to do it from home than if you have to be there. Because if they deprive you then, um, I mean, I was I was pretty sick for several days afterwards because of that experience. Yeah. And it made me not want to do another warrant because I felt like I was not protected. Yeah. And there's, well, first of all, just to your point about the, the like costs, like there's a saying that a budget is a reflection of values. And this is a great example of that. Like either you want the disabled people and other people who need accommodations to participate or you don't. And like, it, it shouldn't, it, it isn't really even that cost. I mean, compared uh, that expensive, I mean, compared to like the overtime they're paying to police in some of these communities, like the cost of having like a few cameras yeah. set up is, is nothing, but there, there's a, Zoom a couple a Zoom subscription costs a lot less than denying me pre yeah. police records, you know, yeah. <laughs> but there, there's a couple uh, points on this. I, I do want to uh, get to one is just uh, in terms of like journalism, having these is important too. Like, so, one example, I have, if you've heard of The Patch, it's like an online uh, publication that covers different communities in the state. I, I don't want to name this person, but I've spoken to a journalist there who told me a little bit about their work. And they are expected to cover, it's like five or six communities. And they were telling me they were like embarrassed that they haven't even been able to visit all the communities. Uh, and they're just, they're constantly working on stories. They don't even have time to like, you know, a lot of it is just like, They've got press releases and, and, and news releases to cover, and they've got to get out X number of stories. And to just be able to like play a meeting in the background while you're making dinner, it it helps them get their work done. And I mean, that's a sad commentary on the state of journalism right now, but it's still true that it, it's, it's helpful to journalists. Uh, and, you know, it's also helpful like to be able to get the recording after the fact, you know, if you weren't able to to, to be there at the time. But at the same time, having the option to go there in person is still important, I think, for journalism, because a lot of these public officials are inaccessible, often deliberately so. And to just be able to, to you know, walk up to them at the end of a meeting and say, hey, can I ask you about this thing? Even if they walk away or they don't have a comment, at least you've made the effort and you can show the community that you're trying to reach out to these people. Um, but on a different topic, there is another thing that I, th I think is a, a really incredible story I want to talk about with remote access to meetings. This is at the legislature, not at the local level. This is this is sort of the uh, possibilities that are opened up by by remote access to meetings. They had a, a well, just real back background, real quick. We have the oldest 
women's prison in the country here where I live in Framingham, uh, MCI Framingham. And there's uh, the state for years has been planning to to build a new $50 million prison to replace Framingham, which is like in terrible state. There's like mold. There's all these different problems there. It's it's a real mess. Um, and so, of course, the argument is we need a new a new prison to replace it that costs $50 million, even though they've actually in the last few years, they've cut down the, the number of people in for in, uh, you know, incarcerated there by more than half. But so a lot of groups are trying to stop this. And there's a bill that would have a five year moratorium on the construction of new jails and prisons. It would allow them to make like necessary repairs, but it wouldn't allow them to increase the capacity at all. But they had a hearing in June and I believe they had a second hearing. I don't know exactly when it happened. I, I only uh, listened to the first one. But what they actually did was they had incarcerated people testifying remotely from the prison. So I believe there were 23 incarcerated women at MCI Framingham, and there were two incarcerated men from, uh, I believe it was Sousa Baranowski prison. Um, and that it was apparently from what they were saying, the first time anything like this has ever happened, it was incarcerated people talking directly to lawmakers about an issue that more than anyone else, you know, affects them specifically. And you might think that they'd be like, yeah, build us a, a new prison that is way better than the shithole we live in right now. But no, that they were saying is that building a new prison isn't going to fix any of the problems we're experiencing. Like what we are experiencing is like neglect in terms of our medical care, neglect in terms of the food that we eat. Um, just uh, all these, these problems that you can't fix it with, with a new prison. Um, you know, they were saying that there aren't uh, vocational training and educational opportunities for them which uh, is really unfortunate because some of those people are serving life sentences, but some of them are going to be out in the community and they need options so that they can uh, be in a better position when they're finally released. And I just wanted to bring that up as an example of what can happen when we really make an effort to make these um, kinds of things accessible instead of just making excuses for why it's not possible. Yeah, It's shocking how resistant the prison people are when it comes to remote access to anything. Prior to the pandemic, the um, so UMass Chan Medical School holds a lot of the contracts for a lot of the federal prisons. And they would constantly say, we can go ahead and we can set up telehealth. We will put the iPads in your building and they can talk to a doctor and it will save you guys money on bringing people off site. You won't have to you know, bring in the people who have to drive them in and have three people on a detail to go out to, to bring them places. And it was so resistant for something that would save them money and save them time because for reasons we never understood for reasons we don't we don't know why you know there's no harm in letting um a a person who's in jail talk to a doctor over a zoom call there's no security breach that they have to worry about you know i i would be more worried about bringing them out than keeping them in place but the resistance is crazy the resistance is nuts yeah and i mean i just think that there's a resistance to listening to incarcerated people. It's like, I don't think there's any harm in having them talk to the legislature. It's not like they're going to like legalize murder if they get to talk to, you know, the lawmakers, like the things they were asking for were like, treat us like human beings and give us more opportunities to, um, 
to to um, you know in 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 cases where it's appropriate to serve out our sentences in the community, and um, they you know it, it was very powerful. And it's it's one thing to have like some of these groups like uh, Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts, or there's an incredible organization that, that testified there called Families for Justice as Healing, which has been really spearheading the effort to pass this prison moratorium bill. And many of those people are formerly incarcerated. But still, it's it's another thing entirely to have the people actually testifying from the prison and knowing that some of those people could like face retaliation for speaking out against the prison. Uh, uh, but but, uh, you know, the, the, there were 23 women, I said, and MCI Framingham only has around 200 women incarcerated there. So we're talking like 10 percent of the prison is there talking at that one hearing to the legislature. And I don't know how many people testified at the other one, but again, it's just, it's just an example of, of the importance of putting in the effort to actually hear people's voices instead of just making excuses for why it's impossible. Laura, uh, what else is, uh, what are we missing here? What, uh, what? So to piggyback on your point about the prisons, another place that got a lot of access that I talked about in my article are housing authorities. So, you know, every municipality has a housing authority that's run under HUD, you know, where they have Section 8 housing and they also have a certain amount of vouchers. Prior to the pandemic, I know here in Arlington, those meetings were just the board. And from what I hear, uh, the tenants dealt with some pretty egregious code violations, like rodent infestations. I mean, there was even a fire a couple of years ago that killed a tenant at one of the properties. I'm a Section 8 voucher holder with Arlington Housing Authority, and I dealt with a very egregious issue where they tried to renege my voucher and they couldn't give me any real reason. And I started to wonder if it was because I was a reporter and they didn't like my history. Um, but when they started doing the remote meetings, suddenly they had hundreds of their own tenants there complaining about these things. And they did start fixing a lot more. They started addressing, um, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but the board president who was um, kind of controversial left um, and they did change a lot of their practices and things, there did seem to be progress on, on things after hearing from a lot more tenants. There was a board that one of the, the only family property um, that they had had no board in like decade or 12 years or something like that. And they finally got their own um, or what it, it's not called a board. It's called called like um, like a little tenants union type of thing. It's uh, for each property and they didn't have one now. And then they did get one. Now they've just been disbanded because they're disagreeing with the housing authority about something. But just to say that there's that, that this is another that's another um, population of people who are getting to advocate for themselves. Um, and they they weren't prior to the pandemic when it was in person only. And I actually have to say, I'm, I haven't been keeping up as much with those meetings to know if how they're going right now, but I, I worry if those are in person. And that was what, for my article, what I was deprived of. The minute they had that, there was just this tiny window where Baker's orders expired before he renewed them. And they, they were like, Never, and they originally had it as a remote meeting and they're like, never mind, it's in person. And I was like, can I have a remote option? They're like, nope. And then Baker renewed something, but they're like, ah, we're going to do it in person anyway, because it's too late. Um, and so that meeting was in person. It was like an, like, it was like their annual review meeting about how they set their policies. So 
I, mean, I think it was a four day window too. You're not yeah, kidding it was when something you say like it was a window. Four days, but that it was expired where the on a Friday and it was like midweek the following yep. week. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. And it was a Monday meeting, I think. And I was, I, I couldn't go because they, they kept it as in and they originally did have it as remote, but as soon as they got the permission, they made it in person and they wouldn't give remote options to me. Um, so, I mean, tenant, that's another way, that's another area where a lot of people were deprived of, of access to be able to weigh in on something that very much personally impacts them. Yeah. And Laura, I mean, that's just the perfect example is that transparency ultimately is a choice. You know, if they, they want to do it, they will. If they don't want to do it, they won't. And in that example of that I gave of the uh, legislature with the prison moratorium bill, these legislatures had uh, let, legislators had to like set this up like they wanted to do this. And so they did. Um, but, you know, apparently in this case, uh, you know, they didn't want to have transparency. And it's one of those deals, too, where if the default was transparency and if the default was we want to get as much as we can from as many people, as opposed to the idea of democracy simply being the ones who decide to show up, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation today because it would be a default that we would open up meetings in a hybrid way to allow people with disabilities to attend them, where we would have them in places where people with disabilities could attend in comfort without having to worry about you know, getting sick post-pandemic. All these sorts of things would just be the default. We would just know this. But instead, all of the structures are built around hiding everything. And all of the structures and all of the laws are complied to, to the letter, to the point where they're trying to find any loopholes they can to make sure we we, we can't get access to them. It's disgusting. Yeah. And let's, maybe we'll end on this note, which is that democracy is more broad than you just like show up to the polls at once every two years. It's, it's not as simple as that. It's the idea that every person can fully participate in society, whether they're young, whether they're old, whether they're fully abled or disabled. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. They should be able to have a voice. They should be able to participate. They should have a say in the way decisions are made in not just a superficial way, but in a real way, they should be able to exercise political power uh, with the same way that any other person would be able to. Um, and I just wanna say for our listeners, the uh, bill that Laura was advocating for, uh, it's called an act to modernize participation in public meetings. Again, it would require uh, all public meetings to be hybrid unless a hardship waiver was granted by the attorney general's office. Unfortunately, that last part about the hardship waiver, we didn't get to talk about, but the uh, bill numbers are H3040 for the house version and for the Senate version, it's S2024. And uh, if you care about transparency, if you care about being able to participate in your local government, you might want to look up your state legislator, give them a call, send them an email, just tell them that, uh, you know, you are in favor of being able to uh, have a hybrid, have mandatory hybrid meetings in your community. And uh, Laura, we want to just give you the last word and also just give you an opportunity to um, let people know where they can find your work. Oh, thanks. Uh, so just just to reiterate, it's just I think we really do need need to mainstream hybrid because I think it's just 
it's just an access need for many people, not just disabled people. I mean, and we've learned this with other types of access, right? What when we start granting access to disabled people, we find, oh, it's it's inclusive to a lot more people than just disabled, like working class people, single parents, a lot of people who cannot, um, lower income people, people who work night shifts, you know, a lot of people who just could not otherwise make these meetings, but they make up part of a community. And if you want to make a community feel valued, all community members and not just those who are privileged enough to be available for four hours in a night, um, then you adopt these measures and you take pains to. So I, I am disappointed that more of the I'm disappointed that so many municipal representatives didn't seem to understand how their comments were hurtful um, and regressive, especially since so many disabled groups testified that day about how it's an how it's a vital access need and, and democratic. Um, so I just hope people will consider that, because even if you're not disabled now, you may be in the future and you may want to weigh in on something or you, your situation may change and you, you will want to probably have these access um, options for yourself at one point. Oh, and people can find my work. I mean, I do have a website. I have to update it, laurakiesel.com. Uh, or you just Google me and you'll find my different articles on different topics. And I, I have published a lot with Dig Boston. Mm -hmm. Yeah, including a piece. Uh, it was not recent. It was like a little while ago, but you did write a piece about this, which we can yes. link to. And uh, we will link to those bills as well. Uh, you have been listening to Lights Out Mass. I'm Andrew Kumar. Uh, I write the Mass Dump newsletter, which is andrewqmr.substack.com. That's where you can find the podcast. You can also find it on Apple and Spotify now. And uh, again, my co-host is Jeff Raymond uh, of the Mass Transparency Project. Jeff, what's the uh, URL for that? That is masstransparency.org. And Laura, I do want to thank you um, yes. for coming on today. Absolutely. Um, Especially, you know, I know that there's a there's a tendency amongst those who are not disabled to ask people who are disabled to really stand up for themselves when we we aren't doing it for them. And I really appreciate you sharing your stories with us today and, you know, being that voice that we are unable to be for you. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, folks. Uh, we will. I don't really know when our next one's going to be. Maybe next week, maybe two weeks. You'll we'll have to see find what happens. Out. Yeah, Jeff and I will. Uh, we're kind of. We're kind of. Uh, we're figuring it out. We're, we're figuring, figuring it out as we go along. So yeah. check us out whenever, whenever the next one comes out. Thanks, yeah. folks. <laughs>